I like to listen to this one podcast, um, and it's about science. So, you know, you can guess that. Um, it's called Tetrapod Zoology, and um, they're dealing with paleontology and animals and all kinds of things. Very interesting. And every once in a while, they start talking about other things as they come up, and they'll talk about religion occasionally. And both these guys are atheists. They're both, um, both scientists, but uh, they're very clear about the fact that they are not religious. And for some reason, they started talking about Jesus in one of the podcasts. And so I was like, oh, this is interesting. See what they think about Jesus. And the one guy was saying, well, you know, people just interpret the Bible however they want. I mean, um, we don't really know anything about what Jesus was really like. You know, people claim he's like this, then people say he's like this. It's even contradictory in scripture. Um, and it was interesting. The other guy said, no, actually, I disagree with you. I think we do know what Jesus was like. I think that scripture does portray a certain picture of him. And um, I thought, oh, that's interesting, coming from an atheist, you know. And essentially what he said was, when you read, you know, the Bible, you learn that Jesus was a nice guy that wanted other people to be nice to each other, wanted them to love each other, and that's it. That's what Jesus is all about. And, you know, this is very much the sort of liberal theology position on Jesus, is that, well, he's just a nice guy, right? Um, he came here to teach us to love one another, so we get the social gospel concept from, and that's basically it. Now, I'm sure most of you in here, if not all of you, are going to realize that Jesus was more than just a nice guy. I think we can probably agree on that. And in fact, Jesus himself claimed to be much more than that. In Luke 22:70, Jesus uh, was in his trial with the Sanhedrin, and they were questioning him. They asked him, are you the son of God? And all he said was, yes, I am. Very straightforward. And that backs up his claim he previously made in John 10:30, when he said, I and the Father are one. You know, Jesus also claimed to be the Messiah. In Luke 22, 67 to 69, so same passage, the Sanhedrin had asked him, you know, tell us plainly, are you, are you the Messiah? Are you the Christ? And he said, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask a question, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. And Jesus is speaking these words, quoting the book of Daniel, um, talking about the Son of Man um, and his, his coming and being at the right hand of God. So the people understood he was the Messiah, right? And, I mean, we know that because on the cross, they hung a sign above him that said, this is the king of the Jews, right? So they realized that Jesus claimed to be the Messiah. Um, Jesus claimed it. The people knew it. The people knew he claimed to be the son of God. Um, these are not surprises there. It's only as we try and reinterpret scripture now that we, we lose those things. But how was Jesus portrayed in the Gospels beyond just his claims? Well, you know, he was, he was meek. He was humble. He was lowly. That's how it talks about in Zechariah 9, right? It talks about... You know, Jerusalem, your king, is riding to you on a donkey. Um, he's humble. And that really confused some people who were looking for this sort of uh, warrior Messiah king to free them from Roman oppression, right? That was a very big surprise to them. And that's kind of the Jesus we're used to seeing. When people paint pictures of Jesus or, you know, we hear about Jesus or we see a movie about Jesus, that's, that's the kind of Jesus we think about. The Jesus we see in the Gospels died for our sins. He rose from the dead three days later. But until his resurrection, his glory was veiled. Remember in Philippians 2, 5 through 8, we learn that Christ emptied himself before becoming a human. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You know, Jesus was a man just like us, but was without sin. Okay? He was tempted in every way as we were, and that allows him to sympathize with our weaknesses, according to Hebrews 4.15, yet he was totally without sin. Isaiah 53.2 says, He had no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. Remember that when Jesus began his public ministry by preaching in the synagogues of Nazareth and Capernaum, the people were amazed by his teaching because it was with authority. In Nazareth, they said, is this not Joseph's son? 
right? Don't we know this guy? Don't we know his parents? Who is this guy? You know, there was no halo around Jesus' head. The reason people recognized him as someone special was not because of the way he looked. It was because of his words and his works. That's what stood out to people. You know, I mean, think about it this way. It's like, if you go to a circus, you expect to see all kinds of crazy things happening, right? But you walk into your workplace, you're not expecting to see an elephant and acrobats and, you know, someone swallowing fire. Like, that's not what you would expect to happen. Um, in the same way, he's just a normal-looking guy, and yet he's feeding the 5,000. He's a normal-looking guy, and yet he's, you know, raising someone from the dead. Or he's preaching with such authority that you've never heard something like that before. That's what was so unusual. That was standing out to the people. Jesus spoke with great authority, and he also performed many signs and wonders, and that amazed the crowds and his disciples. But only Peter, James, and John got to see Jesus in his glorified state at the transfiguration before he was crucified and resurrected. And that glimpse at the transfiguration revealed what was to be, and that's what we're going to look at today. The Gospels record Jesus as he was on earth, meek and lowly, without majesty, but Revelation paints a very different picture of our Savior. And in fact, you could kind of say there's three different main pictures of Jesus in Revelation. Um, and none of them look at all like the Jesus we know from the Gospels in outward appearance. They're pretty startlingly different. And, you know, it's no surprise that people come to Revelation and they're really shocked to see these unusual depictions of Christ with this kind of bizarre symbolism. They're like, what's going on here? This isn't the Jesus that I read about a little bit ago. And, you know, you might even wonder whether Jesus that John describes in Revelation is in fact the same guy that he described in his own gospel. Uh, it seems so different. Nevertheless, all three portrayals of Christ are accurate and useful, and they show us Christ as he was and is and is to come. And this morning, we're going to see Jesus as he appears to John in Revelation chapter 1, as he appears in heaven in chapter 5, and as he appears coming down to earth in chapter 19. And through a concentrated look at each of these portrayals, followed by a comparison, we're going to be more fully able to appreciate Jesus Christ, the Son of God and Son of Man, the slain Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, and the King of kings and Lord of lords. And that's going to in turn deepen our love for him, our reverence for him, our understanding of our relationship to him. So let's, let's jump right into this. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 1. And this is going to be our first point. This is Jesus, the Son of Man, alive forevermore. I'll give you that again. Jesus, the Son of Man, alive forevermore. So we're going to be looking at verses. Uh, we're going to be starting in verse 10. Follow with me. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. And I heard behind me a loud voice, like the trump sound of a trumpet, saying, Write in a book which you see, and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, and to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe reaching to the feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white like wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it had been made to glow in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man, and he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. And the living one. And I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and of Hades. Therefore, write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after these things. As for the mystery of the seven stars, which you saw on my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So I'll tell you right now, we're not going to get to look at every single image that's here. Uh, we don't have the time to look at all of it. But I want to highlight a few things here from this passage. The first thing John sees are seven golden lampstands. 
And Christ later explains, as we just read, that these lampstands represent the seven churches to which John is going to write. Now, what is most important here about John's account is not the lampstands. But I really want you to understand what's going on here. This is incredibly important to understand Christ's current relationship to us. The most important part is the fact that John saw Christ, whom he described as like the Son of Man, standing in the midst of the lampstands. Okay, that's what matters. He's standing in the midst of the lampstands. That is, Christ is standing in the midst of the churches. He is moving in and among the different local manifestations of his church, which is his body. John MacArthur noted, Jesus promised his continued presence with his church. Right? We see this. Um, he makes this promise several times in the Gospels. I'm going to point out three to you here. Um, in Matthew 28, 20, Jesus tells his disciples before his ascension, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And of course, you're familiar with this passage. Anytime somebody speaks on missions or evangelism, you read the Great Commission. Um, but note how encouraging that is. He's about to leave, and he says, I am with you always. Remember that in Matthew 18, 20, Okay, this is one of the, the key texts we go to on church discipline. Christ promises to be present with the church during the difficult times of church discipline. Um, and you hear this passage pulled out of context a lot. It's the one that says, um, where two or three are gathered, you know, I'm going to be with them. That's the idea. Um, and people will just say, oh, it's when two or three people are gathered together, you know, any believers anywhere. And that is true. Like Christ will be with you. But that's not what he's talking about. He's specifically talking about when, when you are having to make these difficult, hard decisions, when you're trying to figure out how to, to deal with sin in the church, know that I'm with you. I'm there with you. I can help you. And finally, in John 14, Jesus reassured his disciples by telling them he was going to the Father to make rooms for them. Okay, remember they're in the Last Supper, and he says, I'm going away, I'm going to prepare a place for you, and I'm going to return to get you. That's what he talks about. This is clearly a comforting picture to the reader. Right? It's not only that Jesus is coming back, but he's, he's making a place for you. That's going to be your home. You're supposed to live there. We humans may no longer be able to see Jesus, but he is no less present among us as he was before. And in fact, there's a sense in which you could say he's more present now than he was before. Because think about it, right? If Jesus was giving a sermon up on a mountain and you happen to be over there, you wouldn't hear him. You know, you had to walk all the way up there to try and hear him. Or if... You know, Jesus was healing the sick in this town and you live in the next town over, you better hope that you book it over there before he's gone because you're not going to get to healed. But we don't have that problem now, right? It's not like if I don't show up at a church somewhere in Jerusalem, I'm going to miss out on hearing the gospel or that I'm not going to be able to, to partake in the Lord's table. No. I mean, Jesus is working through his church all around the world. That's exciting. And jumping back to the text, John starts describing the Son of Man. He starts with Christ's clothing. He says he's wearing a robe reaching to the feet and girded across with a golden sash. Okay, so there's been two kind of interpretations as to what's going on here. Um, the first, and you might be thinking this yourself, uh, that the robes represent the high priest, right? Christ is our high priest. Read that in Hebrews. Um, and uh, James Durham said that Christ's appearance actually reflected his three roles. He thought the long robe was the priest, the golden girdle was the fact that he was king, and that um, his sword coming out of his mouth, which we read later, represented his prophetic office. Um, so that's kind of a cool uh, way of thinking there. Um, but there's another way of thinking about this, and the, the term that's used here, I'm not going to try and pronounce it because it's a really difficult Greek term, uh, two words that mean clothed down to the feet. Okay, and actually some, the translation I just read said it that way. So it just means a really long rope. That's all it means. And actually that, that term is used elsewhere in scripture, not just a priest. But what's really interesting is those two words are found together in the Septuagint, which is the Greek version of the Old Testament, in Exodus, or not Exodus, Ezekiel 9.2. Um, and this is an interesting passage because it has some kind of eschatological type feeling that, um, that Revelation does. So in Ezekiel 9.2, um, Ezekiel sees this vision of Jerusalem, and God calls these six men that have these shattering weapons in, these, in their hands. These like, you know, they're going to go in and, and bash some heads in. And he says that's what they're supposed to do. Go and destroy the inhabitants of Jerusalem, of Israel. And uh, then we find out there's another guy. And this guy, it says, is dressed in a robe down to the feet. And 
he is instructed by God to place a mark on the foreheads of those who sigh and groan over all the abominations that take place in the midst of Jerusalem. So you can picture this as these guys are going to go in, they're going to wipe out everybody, but there's this other guy who's going to come in and he's going to mark people's foreheads and say, this is a person that's righteous. This is a person that, that hates sin and hates what's going on. I'm going to mark them so they're not destroyed. Okay. So this man does this. He reports back to God in verse 11. He says, I have done just as you have commanded me. And this man represents mercy to the righteous in the midst of judgment on the unrighteous. And I think that fits really well with what we see in Christ in Revelation, right? That's, his, that's what he's doing. He's, bringing, um, uh, he's going to bring judgment on the unrighteous. We'll see that later. But he's also preserving the righteous. Uh, he's being merciful to them. And I don't think we can say without a shadow of a doubt whether the robes represent the high priest or represent this other guy or both. I'm not sure. But um, I think it's, it's useful to consider those those different things, and they seem very likely. But after he talks about his robes, he moves on to his hair. Okay, so Revelation 1.14 says, his head and his hair were white like wool, like snow. Okay, does that strike you as odd? I mean, think about, you know, the readers of the time. They read that, you know, if Jesus had had white head and white hair in Galilee, I think he would have stood out, right? That was not the norm. They didn't have a lot of albinos, I'm assuming. Um, and, you know, it seems odd to us. So what is he talking about? He's, he's referring to Daniel 7, 9. Okay, no, I want to make this clear. He is seeing this, okay? This is a real vision. But I think that the terminology he's using, he's thinking about the Old Testament as he's writing. Um, so Daniel 7, 9 says, I kept looking until the thrones were set up, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His vesture was like white snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were a burning fire. Okay, so if you're familiar with the book of Daniel and that passage, you might be wanting to point out to me that the Ancient of Days, not the Son of Man, is the one described here as having the hair like wool. And that's a good point. Um, so the question is, did John get confused? Like, he's like, well, I kind of remember the book of Daniel. Somebody in heaven has white hair. Oh, I'm just going to make it Jesus. No, I don't think that's what's going on. I think... What John is doing is he's purposefully identifying the attributes of God the Father with God the Son. So the Ancient of Days, the Son of Man, he's connecting those things for the reader. And of course, I also believe he's seeing those things and that Jesus is wanting him to understand that kind of thinking. Now, this is actually really cool because um, this means that John has some kind of Trinitarian understanding. He believes that Jesus is God. All right, contrary to what you read in the Da Vinci Code or saw on the History Channel, the concept of the Trinity didn't just suddenly get made up in the Council of Nicaea in the 300s. People didn't just later make up, oh yeah, Jesus was God, by the way. You know, no, that's in the Bible. I mean, don't look to the History Channel to get your understanding of Scripture. And also, aliens didn't make the pyramids and mermaids are not real, or whatever other nonsense you're watching on the History Channel. Just stop it. It's not worth it. Watch something else. Anyway, John next looks at Christ's eyes. They are like a flame of fire. Okay, the idea here is that eyes are piercing. All is laid bare before him. And this fits really well with what we read after this. If you read Revelation 2 and 3, he's talking to the churches, and he's evaluating their faith and conduct. Okay, they can't hide from him. They can't hide from his omniscience. He sees it all. And burning eyes also carry a component of judgment. Christ is evaluating the churches, and he warns them of their errors to keep them from falling into greater judgment. And continuing with this thought of judgment, then John goes to Christ's feet. In Revelation 1.15, he says they're burnished bronze, which has been made to glow in a furnace. And um, depending on your translation, that may look a little bit different. Um, some people think he just means it's really shiny bronze, like really polished. Um, but really, the best translation here is it's on fire. It's ablaze. So when you put metal right? You get it really hot, it glows. Okay, that's the idea of what's going on here. That's what Jesus' feet look like. Now, I want you to think about that. His feet are glowing. They're hot, all right? What is he doing with his feet? He's walking among the lampstands, right? He's walking among the churches with really hot feet, and he's rendering judgment when necessary. It's no accident that John is saying, hey, he's pointing out his feet because his feet are representing judgment and he's walking around among the churches and he is dispensing judgment. 
because he wants to purify his church. This goes well, too, with John describing a sharp two-edged sword coming out of Christ's mouth. So Durham thought this was just an idea of him being a prophet. Um, But I think uh, there are some other passages we need to consider, and Barclay points out some of these. So um, in the Old Testament, Isaiah 11.4 talks about the branch, which is Christ. Uh, He says that he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. And of course, when you hear double-edged sword and the word of God, you're thinking probably Hebrews 4.12, right? Um, It speaks of the word of God as a double-edged sword. Um, It says it it divides, right, between joint and marrow, between um, soul and spirit. It exposes the, the heart. And that fits really well with the image in Revelation. The word... This time, the word meaning Christ has this double-edged sword coming out of his mouth. The word is speaking the word of God. And the, another relevant passage we need to consider is 2 Thessalonians 2.8. So Paul says the Antichrist, who he calls the lawless one, he's going to be slain by the breath of the mouth of the Lord. So we're seeing this idea constantly of, God, of Christ's breath being like a sword, Christ's breath killing or, or dispensing judgment. And that fits really, really well with what we're going to read in Revelation 19 later. So keep that in mind, um, where he talks about the beast and the false prophet being thrown alive in a lake of fire. The rest were killed with the sword, which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. And we'll see who is sitting on the horse in a little bit. Okay, so we got all these different images. How do we put them together? What do we think about this? How is Christ being portrayed in Revelation 1? All right, well, you might call him a few names that I think are all accurate. You might say the risen one, or he's the son of God, or he's the son of man. But I'm going to suggest, I think the the best name, and this is funny because this isn't the name I gave you for the point, but I think the best one, you might just call him the purifier. All right, that's what he's doing right now. He's the one standing among the lampstands with eyes of fire and feet of brazen bronze. This picture accurately describes Christ's current ministry. He's purifying his church. Okay, read the seven letters to the churches that follow this in your own time. You're going to find Christ telling each church how they might be more pure. And this message often involves judgment. He talks to Ephesus. He says, Ephesus, you need to return to your first love. If you don't, I'm going to remove your lampstand from its place. What's the solution? Repent and do the deeds you did at first. All right, what about Thyatira? Well, he condemns them for tolerating the woman Jezebel because she leads the people astray such that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. Christ says he gave her time to repent, but since she refuses, he will judge her with sickness and her children with death. What about Laodicea? Because you are neither cold nor hot, I will spit you out of my mouth. And he advises them to buy gold from him refined by fire so that they may be rich. He tells them, Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Christ does not tolerate sin in his church, so he disciplines his flock. Okay, and I don't want to portray the wrong image of Christ here. He's not looking to beat people up. He's not a thug. Okay, what Christ wants is that his church would be pure. He wants them to glorify God. Because Christ knows what sin does. Christ knows that sin destroys relationships between people, destroys relationships between God and man. And it's disgusting to God, right? It goes against his character, defames his name. That's what Christ is concerned about. He wants the purity of the church. He does it because he says, like he said, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. This is done out of love. And you know what's really interesting? Each one of these letters, you read in chapters two and three, begins with one of the attributes described in chapter one. So Christ will say to whatever church, I can't think of it right now, he'll say, um, the one who has eyes of fire, or to this church, the one who has feet of burning bronze. Okay, that's further proof these attributes are not just randomly chosen features, okay? It's not like John was saying, oh, and he had pockets, and he had toenails, like, he's not just listing off all the things that Jesus had. He's specifically picking out things that Christ wanted him to understand and communicate to the churches so that they'd get this picture of Christ. That information benefits those churches, and it benefits us today. We'll talk about this more in a little bit, but I want to shift gears. We're going to Revelation 5. This is our second point, Jesus, the Lamb who was slain. Point two, Jesus, the Lamb who was slain. 
So first we saw Jesus. Um, you could call him the Son of Man, the purifier. This is Jesus, the Lamb who was slain. <clears throat> Let me give you some context before we jump right into that. So Revelation 4, John is called up to heaven, and he sees the throne room of God. He sees God sitting on his throne. He sees the, seven, or the, um, the elders. He sees the four living creatures. And then he sees that the one sitting on the throne has a scroll in his hand, and the scroll has seven seals on it. All right? And a strong angel says, who is worthy to open the book and break its seals? And no one is found that is worthy in heaven or on earth or under the earth. So John starts to weep. But then we get verse 5 of Revelation 5. Start with me there. And one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elder a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. When he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals. For you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God and they will reign upon the earth. Okay, so this is a very different image of Jesus than what we just saw. And we don't have time, once again, to go through all the details here. If you want to know why he's called the Lion of Judah or the Root of David, I suggest you look up those things on your own. Lion of Judah comes from Genesis 49, 8 through 10. If you want to look that up later. And Root of David comes from Isaiah chapter 11. The elder also tells John that this person has overcome. Okay, overcome what? Well, the answer lies in his appearance. John says that he saw a lamb standing as if it were slain. Jesus was called the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world by John the Baptist, as recorded in John 1.29. And Isaiah, in Isaiah 53.7, says he was oppressed and was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers. So he did not open his mouth. Isaiah also says, Isaiah 53, 5, he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him and by his scourging, we are healed. And interestingly, the title used for Jesus the most in the book of Revelation is actually the lamb. Um, don't know if you realize that or not. I was a little surprised to learn that. 28 times in Revelation, he's called the Lamb. Um, so this is a very important image that's used here, and as I just talked about in Isaiah and in the book of John, um, it's in several places in Scripture. And this Lamb was pierced and slain. Okay, but then how did he overcome? Usually when you think about someone being killed or pierced or slain, they're not overcoming. They're being overcome themselves. Well, Hebrews 2.14 makes that pretty clear. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, and through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil. Okay, in conjunction with this passage, it's important to note that Christ says in Revelation 1.18 that he possesses the keys to death and Hades. What did Christ overcome? He overcame Satan. He overcame sin. He overcame death. He overcame Hades. I mean, he overcame. He definitely did. And there are a few other observations we want to make here. We've got to look at what the elders are saying and the four living creatures. They sing a new song about the lamb and the book. What do they say about him? They say he is worthy. He's worthy to take that scroll, to open its seals. Why? Why is he worthy? Well, they say he was slain. And through his death, he purchased from every tribe and tongue and people and nation people human beings. And he is victorious by doing the unexpected. He died for those who despised him. Why? To take them and transform them into a kingdom and priests to our God. If you want to understand what Jesus was doing on earth, 
Here's your passage right there. Summarizes the whole thing. It's very nice. So it's interesting. We just talked about Revelation 1 was his current ministry, right? That's what he's doing right now. He's purifying the church. Well, we could accurately say Revelation 5 is actually a description of his past ministry, what he did. He sacrificed himself for our sins. Now, our final portrayal of Christ we're going to look at is in Revelation 19, and that deals with Christ's future ministry. Okay, so we looked at his present, we looked at his past, now we're looking at his future. So, point three, Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Let's look at Revelation 19. We're going to be looking at verse 11 through 16. Read it with me, silently. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has written the name King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Okay, once again, this is pretty different than what we've seen before. There are some similarities here. I'm sure you picked up on a few things as you're reading. Um, eyes of fire, right? We talked about the sword coming out of his mouth. That's been there before. Um, but there's a lot of differences here. Well, he's riding a white horse. That's the first thing we see. All right, so why? I mean, does Jesus need to ride a horse? He's Jesus. He can just fly down there, right? He doesn't need a horse. So that's kind of an odd detail. I mean, what's with the horse? Uh, well, let's, let's look at this, okay? Well, the first thing you might think about is this isn't the first time you see a white horse in Revelation. Okay, so Revelation 6-2, we're opening the seals, and um, you have the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Okay, and one of them is riding a white horse. Um, these are not the same people, okay? So this individual in um, Revelation 6 that is not the savior. It's actually a force of evil, the imitator of Jesus Christ. He seems to be the Antichrist. He's an imposter. All right? He's trying to look like Jesus. He's riding a white horse. He declares peace. Right? He conquers without fighting. He seems like Jesus himself, but he is not. Now, how do we know that this rider on the white horse is Jesus? Well, actually, we know pretty well because John says he's faithful and true says he's the word of God, which is a name that John uses to describe Jesus in his own gospel, and that he is the king of kings and lord of lords. So there's no doubt here that in Revelation 19, we're talking about Jesus. But Revelation 6, we are not talking about Jesus. So we still haven't answered the question, why is he riding a horse? Well, in the gospels, he rode a donkey, right? Palm Sunday, rides a donkey into Jerusalem, they say, Hosanna, Hosanna, you know, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Well, by riding a donkey instead of a horse, Jesus demonstrated his meekness and humility. Uh, and we know that because that's what Zechariah 9.9 says. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So, Lots of people have noticed that white horses in John's day were ridden by victorious Roman generals, okay? You had just won the battle, you're prancing into the city to show that you won, you're riding a white horse. So this picture of a war horse fits really well here with the, the rest of the description of Christ. I think you're gonna see that, that he is coming to wage war. And here Christ is called faithful and true. All right, these qualities are certainly spoken in connection with Christ and God elsewhere in scripture. Right, so Hebrews 10.23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Psalm 36.5, David writes, your loving kindness, O Lord, extends to the heavens, your faithfulness reaches to the skies. Okay, so maybe John is just trying to point out that Jesus and God have the same qualities. You know, they're both faithful and true. Well, I think there's actually something more going on here. Um, there's, a, there's a more important emphasis we're missing maybe in our first reading. 
it's good to reread scripture over and over and over again. Um, and actually, MacArthur noted this, that faithful and true makes Christ stand apart from Satan, who's the deceiver of the whole world. We just, we read in Revelation 12, 9, and the father of lies in John 8, 44. Right? It makes sense that the true rider of the white horse would want to set himself up in contrast to the false rider on the white horse we talked about was the Antichrist, right? So we're noting that the one horse, the Antichrist, that's an imposter. Jesus is coming in saying, I am faithful and true. I'm the real representation of what it looks like for a savior to come, okay, the Christ. That's what he's demonstrating. He is faithful and true. Now John points out that Christ judges and wages war in righteousness, okay? And this is something that I thought, oh, this is really interesting. I hadn't picked up on this before. Um, in Christ's first coming, he was judged unjustly by the Sanhedrin, right? He had a trial. It was an unfair trial. Um, he was judged um, and sentenced to death, even though he didn't deserve it. So what does Christ do when he comes back? He judges righteously. He judges the people of the earth fairly. MacArthur notes that because Christ always does what is right, being God, he must righteously judge the wicked. There's this idea going on right now that um, God has no wrath. God doesn't judge people. Um, Christ doesn't judge people. But you know what Christ himself said? For the Son of Man is going to come in glory of his Father with his angels and will then repay every man according to his deeds. That's Matthew 16, 27. John records it, John 5, 22, for not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son. That's Jesus talking in the book of John. In 527, he says, he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. Okay? Christ is coming as a judge. And we're going to return to that idea of him waging war in a second. But first, I want to note the flame of fire in the eyes. Okay? So this is going back to chapter 1. But what's new this time are the many diadems or crowns upon his head. Why would you wear more than one crown? Like you have one head. We don't put more than one hat on. That would be silly, right? Um, but here Jesus is wearing more than one crown. What's the point? Well, people back in that time would wear more than one crown upon their heads to note that they owned more than one kingdom. Okay, so in 1 Maccabees, yes, I'm quoting from the Apocrypha, but it's a historical account here. Don't worry. Um, Ptolemy, in 1 Maccabees 11:13 wore two crowns as he entered Antioch to say he was king, or he was lord of Asia and lord of Egypt. So he was like, I own both these places, so I can wear two crowns. That's how it works, all right? So if Christ is wearing multiple crowns, what is he saying? He's saying, I'm the supreme and sovereign ruler of the nations. I own all the nations. I have all the crowns. That's how it goes. That's what he's saying. And now we get to an even more peculiar statement. And then he says, he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. So I don't know exactly how that works. Like, you can see the name, but you can't read it. Or, you know, it's written in a language you don't understand. I don't know. But I think it makes sense to follow what MacArthur says, that all speculation is pointless as to its name or meaning. Right? What we can say is that even though God has revealed much to us through his word, there are things which he has chosen not to reveal to us. And there are probably lots of things we can't comprehend. Um, and it's kind of futile to investigate something that God says you can't know. Right? I think we'd agree on that. Yet, this is a little bit of a segue here, there are a lot of people who are trying to predict Christ's return. And this keeps coming up over and over again. And I stand a little baffled. Um, didn't Christ himself say that no one will know the hour or day? Not even the Son of Man himself knows? Yet, people try. So my encouragement to you is do not try to do what God tells you you cannot do. The next physical description John gives of Christ in Revelation 19 talks about his attire. John says Jesus is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. That seems a little odd too. There's actually been three different interpretations as to what this means. The first one is that the blood represents the blood of the saints. Okay, But that doesn't really make any sense here. Um, why is God using Jesus to pour out wrath on those who aren't under his wrath. It doesn't really, it seems odd. Um, so the second interpretation is that the robe dipped in blood is Christ's blood. So it's talking about his sacrifice. But this doesn't seem likely either because we're not talking about Christ's sacrifice. And in fact, 
why didn't we mention this earlier when we talked about him wearing a robe before? And especially in light of the lamb being slain, you think that would have come up then, but it did not. The most likely interpretation is that the blood is the blood of his enemies. Okay, so this finds really strong support in the Old Testament. Isaiah 63, verses 1 through 6. Listen to this. Isaiah 63, 1 through 6. Who is this who comes from Edom with garments of glowing colors from Basra? The one who is majestic in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. Okay, and then he's going to speak here. It is I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. And they say, why is your apparel red and your garments like the one who treads the winepress? He says, I have trodden the wine trough alone. And from the peoples, there was no man with me. I also trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. And their lifeblood is sprinkled on my garments, for I stained all my raiment. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption has come. I looked, and there was no one to help. And I was astonished, there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought salvation to me, and my wrath upheld me. I trod down the peoples in my anger, and made them drunk in my wrath, and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. Okay. I think that's Jesus speaking there. Isaiah. And you might argue, well, that doesn't fit like the Jesus I learned about in Sunday school, right? Um, that Jesus wasn't trotting people down in his wrath and anger. But Jesus spoke of his return and judgment upon the earth while he was on earth. Um, in Matthew 25, we're not going to take a look at it. You can read the Olivet Discourse where he talks about the return of the Son of Man and the judgment that comes there. And the thing is, God's wrath is a clear reality in the Old and New Testaments. His wrath upon unbelievers is a necessary component of the gospel narrative. Okay, I cannot stress that enough. Once again, there are people who talk about God not having wrath. No, that's important because Christ is our propitiation and he bore the wrath of God. As a side note, if you're trying to understand the book of Revelation, you need to take note of the Old Testament. You will not understand Revelation without the Old Testament. Similarly, if your eschatology comes only from Revelation, it's going to get messed up. You've got to take into account the Old Testament. They were looking, um, there were a lot of eschatological texts in there as well. So John refers to Christ as the word of God in Revelation 19.13. Of course, we remember John's gospel. He calls him the word. The word was God. The word was with God. And remember that God spoke the heavens and earth into existence. He used his word to create the heavens and the earth. And what's really cool is that Paul tells us the pre-incarnate Christ, the word created all things. Colossians 1.16 right? So the word uses the word to create. And that's really amazing when you think about all of the imagery that's there and what exactly is being said. Well, let's get back to this text. The sharp sword, right? Proceeds from Christ's mouth. We talked about that in Revelation 1. It's popping up here again. But now we get an extra piece of information. He uses that sword that he may strike down the nations. Okay? That makes since there's a judgment component to the sword, okay? So it's not simply a destructive judgment. You might think it is at first, but if you check out Revelation 19.15 in our passage here, John points out that he will rule the nations with a rod of iron. Okay, that sounds harsh. It is meant to be harsh. He used the word iron specifically. It's not just a rod, it's a rod of iron. But it also indicates he's not going to simply destroy the nations. Instead, he will rule them. Christ didn't come just to completely obliterate everything, right? He came to set things right. And Christ is the rightful king of the nations. Although Satan attempted to offer it to him before in a way that would bypass his suffering on the cross while tempting him in the wilderness, remember that, Matthew 4, Christ will come to claim his title as king of kings and lord of lords. So along similar lines we just talked about, it says he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. Okay? This kind of imagery is very common in the Old Testament. Always is talking about the wine press of God's wrath. Um, and of course, we just saw Isaiah 63, 1 through 6. I mean, it's exactly what he's talking about. So it's important to note two things in connection with this. One, Christ is serving as God the Father's minister of judgment. All right, and that fits with what he said about himself. Remember, he said that, um, the God, that God the Father gave all judgment to the Son. Number two, it fits the picture of the Messiah often painted in the Old Testament. Okay, so if you read in the Old Testament, you read Isaiah 9, 4 through 7, 
You read Isaiah 11, 4 through 5. You read Joel 3, 11 through 16. And you're like, this doesn't sound like Jesus in the Gospels, right? How do I reconcile that? Well, that will be Jesus. He will come back. He will have wrath and judgment on the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. So the final description John gives us in Revelation 19 is that he has written on both his robe and on his thigh the name King of Kings and Lord of Lords. It's not only a fitting description of our Savior, but it actually does a good job summarizing the description of Christ in Revelation 19. The reason he comes to earth, the reason he wages war, the reason he strikes down the nations, the reason he rules them with a rod of iron, the reason he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God is because he is the ultimate ruler of the earth. He is reclaiming the earth from the pretender to the throne, Satan, who is currently the prince of the power of the air, so you can read in Ephesians 2.2. He's also called the God of this age, as you can read in 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. Christ is demonstrating to humanity and to all the spiritual beings that he is the rightful ruler, the faithful and true, the deserved owner of the many diadems, the Messiah sent by God to save a lost and dying world and to transform it by his marvelous light. Okay, why did we do all this? We just spent a lot of time looking at Jesus in three separate spots in Revelation. Well, by looking at these pictures of Christ, we will know and understand him better. He is the purifier and judge of his church, which is his body that he cares for and loves right now. This is ongoing. Jesus right now is purifying his church. He's walking among the lampstands, ministering to the flock with eyes of fire that sees each one's deeds, each church's practice and belief. Okay, if you hear that and you're a little terrified, I think you should be. I think that's a right response. There might be something going on in your life you want to think about. But you know what? Ultimately, this is actually an encouragement. Because right now, at this very instant, Christ is serving you and me and Christians all around the world. He didn't just abandon us when he ascended into heaven. He is serving us right now in a very particular way that he had to go to heaven in order to serve us in that way. That's exciting. And he's able to minister to us as our great high priest in heaven because he overcame. We saw that in Revelation 5. He is the lamb that was slain. He died for our sins, acting as our substitute, that he might reconcile us with God. And that's not the end. He will return. He's coming back. And when he returns, it will be to righteously judge and wage war. He will utterly destroy his enemies with the sword that comes from his mouth. And he will reclaim the world and rule it as the faithful and true King of kings and Lord of lords. Okay, and so we see in an interesting way, we can appreciate Christ's statement in Revelation 1 that he was and is and is to come. Okay, now obviously he's talking about his eternality. He's comparing himself with the great I am, right? The idea that he exists, he was, he is, he is to come. But think about it in terms of his ministry, in terms of what we see in the book of Revelation. He was, he was our sacrificial lamb. He is, he is currently walking amidst the lampstands, purifying his bride. He is to come. He is to come, right? He will return and make things right for the first time since the Garden of Eden. That is the God you worship. God who became man and died and rose again to redeem you to himself. That's exciting. The Bible exists to tell us about Christ because our whole existence is about Christ. Okay? Hebrews 12, 1 through 2. You've heard this before. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And that's the point. That's it. But you know what's funny? You hear those verses all the time. People don't continue to verse 3, even though it's still the same thought. Listen to verse 3. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself. Why? So that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Wow. Okay, Christ isn't just your end goal. You're not just running, focusing on him. Christ is also the one that's keeping you running. That's really cool. All right? That goal at the end, that's what's making you not get weary not grow faint, not lose heart. 
The Christian life is hard. We have difficult lives. But we can think about Christ. We can focus on Christ and we can pursue Christ. And you know what's really interesting? We didn't, I didn't think about this as I was coming up with this sermon, but actually Jessica pointed out to me that this fits really well with what we've been talking about in 2 Peter. Right? 2 Peter chapter 1 keeps talking about the knowledge of him. You need to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. Okay? Now you know what that looks like. I'm not saying you didn't know before, but I'm saying you get a better picture of that. You know what Christ is like. You know how to grow in the knowledge of him. And the thing is, too often, we focus on just trying to get past that one sin or just trying to fix that one problem or just trying to develop that one spiritual fruit or just trying to get that one scripture reading habit down or that one ability to pray more or whatever it is. You know what? But we miss the picture. We're missing the big picture. We become like the crowd in John 6 who chases down Jesus because we want our stomachs filled with more bread instead of recognizing that the bread of life is what we need. He is the one we need to feed on. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, I live because of the Father. So he who eats me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. He who eats this bread will live forever. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your word because it tells us of your son. We thank you for sending your son to die on the cross, to take our place, be our substitute, to bear your wrath so that we don't have to. And not only that, he gave us his righteousness that we might live in a way that's pleasing to you, that we may honor you and obey you with our lives and our words and our thoughts. And we thank you that Christ is currently in heaven ministering on our behalf, on behalf of us individually, on behalf of our church and the churches around the world. We thank you for the fact that he does not want to see us unsanctified, unpurified, that he wants to change us continually into the image of him. And we thank you that he is coming again, that he has not just left this earth for good, turned it over to Satan, given up on it, but instead that he comes back with love, with compassion, but also with judgment on those who are his enemies, on those who do not praise God, those who have taken what he has given them and twisted it. And Lord, we eagerly await the return of Christ. As we are waiting, help us to fix our eyes on him. Help us as we look in scripture to not do it as a chore, but to see Christ, to understand who he is, that we might grow accordingly. It's in your name we pray, amen.